You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, episode 63. And I'm just laying in bed, like oxytocin high, right? Like just really just two hours on my toilet. Like, (laughs) oh my gosh. But it was really a beautiful, beautiful experience. Mm. Like, like no other. Every time I think of it, I'm like, birth is beautiful and empowering. But I think it's like, it kind of feels like you're tripping. Like your hormones are so high. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I just push a human out, (laughs) like, you know. Hey there, and welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves-Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. If you enjoy this show, we'd be incredibly grateful if you'd share it with a friend. You can follow and share our posts on social media at Birth Matters NYC or simply tell them to search for Birth Matters wherever they listen to podcasts. Today, Simone Toomer joins us again to share her second baby's birth story. Simone is a black perinatal professional who serves birthing folks and families in a number of capacities, but at this point in time is mostly focusing on supporting nursing parents. In today's story, she shares how she again chose a Black support team and how her decision to give birth at home was a very logical choice following attending many births as a doula in various birth settings after her first baby's birth. Simone had a quick first birth, and this one's even shorter, lasting only a couple of hours from her noticing the first labor contraction to meeting her son. She then shares being surprised by some of the breastfeeding challenges she experienced with her second since her first experience had been much easier. She explains how taking her son for body work and then getting his tongue tie released made all the difference. Simone also details some of how the challenges she experienced inform the professional lactation support she provides now and talks again about the nursing support group she's doing for nursing parents who identify as black through Chocolate Milk Cafe, as well as for all nursing parents with La Leche League. Now for a quick word from our sponsor. Do you have your free pack for your best birth list yet? This is a great way to start some practical preparation for the big day and really start envisioning your ideal birth. All you have to do is go to birthmattersonline.com slash pack to grab it. You'll also have the opportunity to take a free online mini course that will help you more thoroughly prep for a positively transformative birth. Again, that's birthmattersonline.com slash pack. Now let's hear Simone's story. Today I have with me again, Simone Toomer. Welcome, Simone. Yes, I'm excited. This is not that anything wrong with my first birth story, but I'm really excited about this one. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to hear it. For listeners who didn't hear Simone's first story, be sure to go back and refer to that. She's a fellow birth professional who wears many hats and is an expert in so many fields in this perinatal journey. She's a birth and postpartum doula, a childbirth educator, sleep consultant, lactation counselor, working towards becoming an international board-certified lactation consultant, or IBCLC, the top credential in the field. She leads nursing support groups, ones with both Chocolate Milk Cafe and La Leche League, online and in Brooklyn. Her main focus at this time is on lactation and birth education. <laughs> you do so many things. Yes. What have I forgotten? Yes. 
And I'm a mom of two. <laughs> mom of two. And remind us how old your two are. Mackenzie is eight and Malachi is two and a half. Oh, I love that you did the matching uh, initials. We did that in our our household too with our two kids, although no one knows it because our Gabriella and Grayson, but Gabriella goes by Ella, so no one ever realizes. Oh, okay. (laughs) I like to be cheesy that way. That's funny. My husband's is Mark, so I was like, maybe the next one, if they're the next one, we should do S so I could get stuff on my side. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about... In the years between number one and number two, what was that like? How did you decide or did you decide to get pregnant again or did it just happen? Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. So definitely like I come from a big family, so I knew it wasn't like one and done for sure, but it was just like when would it happen, right? It's funny, the month before we got pregnant, I was like, like something just kind of was like, maybe I should check out the midwife scene. Get to, like I knew from a birth perspective as a doula, like who was out there. And I remember Grace, a, a doula, she was like, why don't you check out Takia? And Takia was actually a midwife I had never heard of. She was here in New York for a bit, and then she practiced in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for most of her career, and then she came back to New York. So I think when I reached out to her, even before pregnancy, I was like, we're going to try to get pregnant soon, and I, I think I'm going to want to interview. And she was like, sure, yeah. And then the next month, <laughs> we got pregnant, and I hit her up. And I remember it's so funny because it it was one of those things where I was like, I should interview people just to know options, but it also felt like I knew she would be my midwife. Like I reached out to different people, but I still somehow just still felt like she's going to be the one. And so I hit her up for an interview and she was like, come on down to my office. And it was like an hour, you know, consult with her to really just feel her energy, feel her vibe. And I just love that personable kind of approach to like, this is someone you're welcoming into your like precious space. And so I chose a a home birth with my second, right? So I had my first in the hospital. By the time I had my second, I had definitely attended well over like 50 or 60 births in all the New York City hospitals, birthing center and home. And I just felt by that time, I was like, there's no need for me to be in the hospital. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm, I'm confident in my body. And there is power in having a supportive birth team, as well as your family involved. And I knew that's what I wanted for myself. Mm -hmm. I did personally want a Black provider and a Black doula. As a doula, I did go um, back and forth with, does a doula need a doula? You know, so I did not hire a doula right away, but eventually I did. (laughs) But Takia, she literally just felt like home right away, you know, and I remember my daughter in her office coloring and asking her questions (sighs) and you know, it just felt natural. So and because I was a low risk woman, I, I hired her, but we didn't necessarily like get into prenatal care straight away. It kind of was like, oh, we could wait a little bit. So maybe I saw her in June, just email communication on how I was feeling. And then our mm-hmm. first like real visit was like probably August or so when I was like 12 weeks for mm-hmm. like blood work and, you know, all of the initial things. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, big difference in how your prenatals feel, right? Definitely. It's a very huge difference. Like, I remember with my first prenatals, one, you're sitting in the office for however long waiting, right? You are then, like, most of the time putting on a, a gown, right? They're taking your vitals, they're measuring your belly, and you're done within, like, probably 10 to 15 minutes. 
with Takia, and there's a lot of midwives that will also come into your home and do prenatal care. So that's beautiful. Also, with Takia, it was split between an office and some of the later appointments were in my house. But they would easily be an hour, maybe an hour and 15, just really like it felt like talking to a girlfriend, you know. And so the clinical side of it was like 10, 15 minutes. The beauty also of the clinical side of it was I was an active participant. You know, I was taking whatever urine to get tested and dipping whatever sticks for whatever test was needed. But the bulk of the the prenatal was really like, how are you feeling? How are you sleeping? How's work going? You know, do you have any concerns about your birth? Because birth is so much more than just the physical. It was really just getting down to just like how I felt in my body and with my progress. And I loved that. Mm. Yeah, much more holistic care, right? Yes. Because usually with a hospital care provider, especially OBs, but not limited to that, I mean, just due to the insurance system alone, they're so rushed. They have to pack so many patients back to back that there's just not much time. Plus, there's not a lot of training for them, I feel like, in holistic care in, you know, really the value and importance of nutrition and lifestyle and like emotions and the mind-body connection yes. and all those yes. things that so, so much matter. Yeah, for sure. I remember I had like some anxiety that presented itself when I was like seven months. I was aware of it, but I didn't really call it anxiety, but I knew it was there. And Sakia and I spoke about it and it really manifested in my postpartum, but it was mm. also nice for her as my provider to already see those red flags too, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and as myself, the patient, but also for me to be in my body and honor what I was feeling too, and how that was impacting my mental health and my wellness. Mm -hmm. Do you mind my asking, did you ever get to the bottom of the source or the root of the anxiety? Definitely. I think, you know, it's funny being a doula, it it sometimes feels like knowing too much can kind of kick you in the butt, right? So my (laughs) Malachi was breached for a little bit, right? And I was like, oh my Oh my goodness. But also I know for a fact, the reason I picked Takia is I felt safe with her and I felt secure in her skill that a breached baby, like I felt like my baby was going to be delivered safely, regardless of breached or not. I trusted her skill set. She had worked with the Amish community. She had worked in the birthing center. She worked in the hospital. Then she went on to her own home birth practice. She recently retired this year, which has been very, very sad for me. I thought so. I was going to just double check (laughs) with you. Yeah, that's what I thought I heard. But she's mentoring some younger midwives, She's mentoring, and she's actually mentoring me regarding my IBCLC. She's an IBCLC. Yay, I love that. You know, like full circle and just being a Black woman, being mentored by another, you know, Black woman. And it's just nice to just have, you know, I have a, a few Black IBCLCs that are mentoring me from the birth community that before my journey of becoming a lactation consultant, we're doulas and, you know, we kind of like ran cases and clients with each other. And it's just like the village, right? Which I think is so, so important. That is beautiful. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. So my anxiety I knew came from initially just like, what if my birth does not go the way I want it to go? Mm-hmm. Right. And then his position and Takia had recommended spinning babies for me. So I was like upside down three times a day, and, you know, like <laughs> all of these 
Yes, inversions and side lie with my leg hanging over uh-huh, my bed yeah. every night. And I was like, I'm going to give this a thousand percent, <laughs> right? And he eventually turned. And another like empowering part of this journey is I remember towards the latter part of my pregnancy being like, oh, like feeling the baby and knowing for sure, like, here's the butt, here's the legs, here's the, the kicks, you know? And Takia would just be like, yep, you're right, right? And there's so I many times that. I hear clients go, Oh, I have to get a sonogram to confirm totally. my baby's position. And I'm like, no, you don't. Like, no, let's you don't. get into our body and feel our baby, right? Because there is a communication happening between the two of you, even though they are inside. And so every night I would just like lay down and just try to feel, you know, before the appointment, like what's going on and then go in and be like, I think this is happening. And it was really cool to always be right about what I was feeling. Yes, 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 yes. I'm so excited that you're talking about this because when I'm teaching birth class, I always bring up spinning babies. I always talk about it can be so confidence building, so empowering to realize you don't have to always ask your care provider in the 30s weeks once the baby's big enough to be able to identify those parts of the baby. And then I direct them to the website and say, look at this little belly mapping area that guides you in learning how to, you know, connect with that and figure that out for yourself and yeah Yeah. that's so cool yeah it's a big deal and I I know for sure once I started implementing that in my prenatal that has changed labor for many of my clients in regards to intensity prodromal labor the length of labor hands down oh yeah yeah and I really I so wish that Well, I wish a lot of things about our hospital births, but but one of the specific things, I was just talking about this last night in birth class, actually, I really wish that when people arrive at triage, that part of the standard protocol would be paying more attention to the nuanced position of the Mm. baby, rather than just, oh, baby's head's down, you're good. Like, that's that's a great way to reduce interventions, right? Yes, yes. I have a doula I'm mentoring now, and I remember her telling me something, you know, while in labor, and I said, that baby's posterior. I said, can you ask the doctor for a little bit of insight? And then doctor confirmed. And so we got mom moving and doing some things to help. But yeah, it's just so interesting to look at the signs of labor or the signs as one nears their due date that could kind of give you some insight to baby's position and, and somewhat of how labor might unfold. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to remember in your second pregnancy, how many weeks you were-ish where you determined that baby was breached and then around when baby flipped? Oh, I don't remember. I remember being nervous around my seventh month, mm-hmm. even though in my head, I was like, I know there's time, right? But that was just like the anxiety. But I feel like he definitely flipped much later. Like I was already like 30 something or so. And then I know with second time babies, they kind of do their own thing and there's <laughs> more space and, you know, mm-hmm. so I would say like he definitely flipped head down later on. And then once he was head down, the goal was to keep him anterior because he was like flipping back and forth and rotating, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where the sideline came in to keep him on one side of my uterus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any other things you wanted to share about your pregnancy or ways that you prepared for giving birth before you go into actual labor? Yeah, no. Takia, like I said, I felt equipped with her her support. Like I said, also, I debated with like hiring a doula. So I did oh, yes. end up hiring a, a, a doula friend. We have a really close doula community. So Tanisha was my doula, who I call her Mama T. She's a mom of three, and she's just so nurturing. Mm. And I just was like, this is going to be my birth. We're going to rock this birth. This is going to be a, like an awesome birth. 
And there was some logistics, of course, at the time Mackenzie was five. So it was like, what if labor starts while she's in school? What if labor starts, you know, all of these questions about who's going to go get her? Are we going to like keep her home or, you know, stuff like that. So it's funny, but my labor actually started the same exact time as my first. So the only difference is with, with Malachi, I want four days past my due date. And I remember getting body work on like um, Wednesday and immediately the day after, like my hips started to really hurt and just things started to feel really loosey goosey. And Friday night I went to bed (laughs) and kind of exactly the same thing. I was waking up every five minutes. So as opposed to my first where contractions started like 20 minutes apart, then got to 10, then to five, these started right away five minutes apart. Two o'clock in the morning, Mackenzie's already asleep. My husband's a night owl, so he's like in the living room doing his thing. I'm like, I'm tired. But after like five or six of them where they're waking me up out of my sleep, I'm like, oh, okay. At that point, I had gone to the bathroom and after the fact, my husband said he noticed blood in the toilet. So I had already started spotting, you know, signs of cervical changes. So I said, you know, I'm going to go in the shower and see if this stops (laughs) and let you know. Mm -hmm. Spent like an hour in the shower. Every time the contraction would come, I would face the shower. So the shower would hit on my stomach and distract me. And then when they were done, I was in there just swaying. It was really calming. Mm -hmm. And then after an hour, I was like, we probably should call Takia. Let her know something has started. So Mark called her and she was like, I'm coming. And I was like, I don't need you. Like, I'm good. Like, you're going to just be on my couch. But if you want to come, no problem. Right. But immediately coming out of the shower, I vomited. And so (laughs) it's funny because my doula brain obviously was not in full gear here. Right. So I'm like, (laughs) I vomit. Okay, but I'm good. I remember getting my birthing ball immediately. I think I had my robe on, walking into the living room, and I'm hot. Like, it's March. So he was born March 3rd, so a storm actually had just ended, like a snowstorm, I think, had just ended. It is hot, and I'm, like, opening the terrace door because I am on fire. I'm, like, turn off the lights, turn off the TV. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to see anything. And I just get on my birthing ball, and I'm just, like, rocking back and forth. And I'm like, I should call Tanisha now. <laughs> right. So like everything started around like 1:45 to by three, Takia and Tanisha are called. And I'm still like, I'm good guys. But Tanisha's like, I'm heading there now. Takia's like, I'm heading there now. And I'm on the phone and I'm like, I gotta go to the bathroom. <laughs> but I'm literally just like, I need to poop. That's all. Like, I just have this, like, in my head, I'm, it's just, like, so funny. Every time I tell this story, I'm, like, and, like, Tanisha is hearing me on the phone, and she's, like, Simone. Because at this point, during contractions, I can't speak. So I'm, like, I'm closing my eyes, and through the contractions, she hears me taking deep breaths. So they were always five minutes apart from the very beginning, but at this point, they're probably, like, two-ish minutes apart. Also, my birth tub isn't blown up. So my husband is trying to blow up the birth tub in between helping me with the <laughs> Scrambling. Right. And I'm like, I just want to get on the toilet. I just need to poop. So as I sit on the toilet, my husband said I was literally trying to attack him. 
Like every time a contraction came, I was going to pull him into me and like grab on his shirt or something. So I'm on the toilet now. The contraction comes and I pull him and it peaks. And every time it peaks, I'm tapping the toilet. And I'm like, it's coming down. It's coming down. It's coming down. And he'll go blow up the birthing tub some more. Then I feel around. I'm like, Mark, Mark, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. He'll come. He, so there's an intuition about me that two days before labor started, I told him, I think I'm going to need you to do hip squeezes on me. Hmm. I didn't need his support in any way. The first, no, let me not say I didn't need his support anyway the first time. The first time I didn't need physical, physical. support. Like I was mm-hmm. fine without any touch. So hip squeezes is the only thing that got me through this. Birth. So every contraction, he was going in there really squeezing my hips as I maybe bit his t-shirt or like <laughs> grabbed something. And then I would say Tanisha arrived around 3.50. And they swapped out where he was like, okay, I'm going to focus on this birth tub, which never got blown up, basically, and filled it with water. And Tanisha comes in and she like, she gets some cinnamon and she gets some hot oils on her. And the hot oils, she like rubs down my back, along my lower back. She's doing these hip squeezes and the heat of the hot oils just really, it's like they counterbalance the contraction. It felt so good. Uh, And... I I feel so bad every time I say this out loud. I I either grabbed her shoulder or bit her shoulder. <laughs> and she she had like black and blue there. And I remember the toilet roll next to me, like my hand kind of like knocking it out the wall, just from pushing down to keep my balance while a contraction was coming. Cause as the contraction's coming, I'm like arching up and like trying to just open my hips up and like get into this really perfect squat to give space for what I'm feeling needs to be done, right? I'm, I'm pooping, bearing down. <laughs> Here comes maybe like 410-ish or so. And right away she goes, Simone, I think you're bearing down. And I'm like, yeah, because I'm pooping. <laughs> and, and, and Tanisha's like, and Sakia just goes, I'm just going to check you really quick to see where you are. Oh, you're 10 centimeters. The head is right there. And then it's as if, like, the minute she said that, it's as if all things ramped up. And I don't even know how everyone got into the bathroom. Like, Mark was in the bathtub. Tanisha was next to me doing his squeezes. Sakia is on the right of me. And Sakia is, like, now just, like, rushing to get her gloves on. Because as she says, I'm 10, I feel this, like, burning fire and I'm like my vagina and I just like scream that and like the head is there basically Mm -hmm. and she's like having Tanisha like help her kind of get things together and she's just like so she goes blow out his first birthday candle slow down your breathing blow out his first birthday candle so to allow me to start slowing down my push right because now I'm on the toilet I remember them asking me, do you think you can make it to the, the, the um, bedroom? And I was just like, no, I can't move from this position. And she comes out and she just says, arch your hips forward. So he doesn't, of course, hit the toilet bowl. <laughs> and she just scoops him up onto my chest. And he gives his first cry. 
And my daughter comes out real foggy eyed and groggy. And we're like, you have a brother. And he's <laughs> were you born. making? Was there enough sound and, and stuff that she woke up or did she somebody wake her up? She just from his cry, which is weird because oh. all the cursing and yelling I was doing before <laughs> – it did not wake her up, <laughs> but I was saying some nice, you know, commentary. <laughs> so he's on my chest and Sakia and Tanisha are like, okay, now let's move into the bedroom. We had like laid chucks down and everything. And I just lay down with him and I'm like crying and he's just on my chest and Kenzie's next to me in the bed, like looking wide eyed, just really excited. And I'm just laying in bed, like oxytocin high, right? Like this really just two hours. On my toilet, like, oh my gosh. And Sakia just goes on to do like my exam. I barely tore. I had a second degree with my first. This one I barely tore, which I think comes more so from like my own pushing as Mm -hmm. opposed to guided pushing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Sakia does everything. The placenta at this point is still inside me. And so at this point, I'm just holding him and she's just kind of like, you can nurse him if you want. And I believe the placenta was in for probably like 45 minutes before I started to feel cramping again. And then once it came out on its own, we just put it in a bowl to the side of me, kept that attached to him until it was really like white and limp. And then Sakia did all of his exams. We latched and they helped me get into the bath, make sure I was eating and hydrating, monitoring my blood and all of those things. Then Kenzie put on gloves and actually like touched the umbilical cord (laughs) and that type of stuff. But it was really a beautiful, beautiful experience, mm. like like no other. Every time I think of it, I'm like, birth is beautiful and empowering. But I think it's like, it kind of feels like you're tripping, like your hormones are so high. And it's like, mm-hmm. I just pushed a human out, <laughs> like, yeah. you know. And then I latched and just to get into a little bit postpartum. Before you go into postpartum, can I just ask a quick question? Because a sure. lot of people, as I'm sure you know, are really afraid of pooping in front of everyone in labor. And it's so common, as you and I both know. And you mentioned pooping. Did you care? I did not care at all. Did not care at all, right? Because you lose all all inhibition. And the vast majority of people are like, what was I so afraid of on the other side of it? Yeah. And honestly, we see poop and we know something's going right, right? Exactly. You're pushing beautifully. (laughs) Totally. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Great. So Thank I was you. not concerned at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I figured. But and, and all the less embarrassing when you're in your own home, in the comfort of your own home, yes. rather yes. than in someone else's building, you yeah. know. Yeah, I just find it funny still to think that I really thought I needed to poop and it never, ever like came up like maybe the baby is right there. <laughs> Even with all the birds better. you attended. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, I just need to poop. I'll feel better. Um, Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> so postpartum. <laughs> Postpartum, Malachi latched, and the first latch was horrible. And I was like, this doesn't feel right. But, you know, sometimes your nipples are a little sore or, you know, something's going on. And despite latching repeatedly, he was born, like, early Saturday morning. By Sunday, my nipples were, like, raw. Mm. And I was like, this did not happen with Mackenzie. And from a professional standpoint, I was like, what's going on? Like, I don't see anything. I'm sandwiching the breast. He has the areola. From the outside, it actually looked really good. But from the inside, it felt like glasses in my nipples. 
Oh, oh man. That's like the way I could describe it. And so I know you were a doula at this point. Were you also a lactation counselor at this point? I was. I okay. was. Yeah. So I actually, doula and CLC were the same year. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I had been practicing for already like four years. But it just felt like, what's going on? Like, I'm doing all the right things. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I heard a tongue tie, but I didn't have much experience with it. And I remember just thinking, like, my nipples shouldn't be banged up. Uh, Takia saw me by Monday. My milk definitely came in within like two days. Like I feel like with every baby, your milk probably comes in a little bit sooner, a little bit more robust. So it, it it's hard to say, but at some point I was in so much pain that I didn't want to breastfeed him. And it was to the point where he wasn't actually gaining, like he had plateaus. So he was born like seven one seven two. He had went down to about 6'11 and just kind of stayed there. And in my head, I was like, everyone's telling me this is okay. And I know it's not okay. At one point, he went like a day without pooping or two days without pooping. And I was like, this is not right. And the pediatrician was like, it's okay. He'll he'll be fine. I was like, no, this is like, what's going on here? I had so many of my friends come over to kind of help me and do weighted feeds. There's an IBCLC who came over to weigh him. And we could tell like his weight just wasn't enough, like his gain, his transfer. And just being a second-time mom, the, the supply was definitely not a question. My milk was definitely in. So I was like, what is going on? I tried the nipple shield, and I still felt pain through the nipple shield. So I was like, what is, what is up? And so by day four, I actually had to start pumping and giving bottles, which was really, really hard for me. Hmm. Just given, like, exclusively nursing Mackenzie, and so I had to go back to work. So now you know, day four being like, mm. either I don't want to nurse him at all because I'm in so much pain, but we got to figure something out because I don't want to do formula. So I would literally be like nursing on one breast because I wanted him at the breast and pumping the other side for that bottle I knew he would need. And then Takia like fast tracking or order a spectra for me because I didn't even anticipate needing a, a pump so soon. And then actually doing like breast and bottle for about a week or two before going to get him assessed for a tongue tie. Hmm. Did you like the Spectra, by the way? I do. Yeah, if, I did. If anybody <laughs> likes a pump, I don't know if anybody really likes a pump. <laughs> I know, in, right? In terms of, I don't know if you had anything to compare it to, uh, like a different model or anything. Actually, with my first, all I ever used was the Medela manual. I didn't even use oh. how much with my first, and the Medela manual was enough. I didn't really like do a lot of bottles with her. So if I did the manual, it was just because I needed like three or four ounces to have there if she needed it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Malachi, I was always trying to like stay above what he needed in case he needed to be supplemented. So being assessed for tongue tie, can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so it, it's interesting because I had a fast birth. And so a lot of my lactation friends who came in to support me, and I have to like shout out to every doula in New York City because I was blessed and showered with so much love from like, you know, different chilies and stews and like the amount of like, till this day, I'm like, I could not have done it without my community, Mm. hands down. And I had already like the anxiety just kind of amped itself up after. So I would have been a hot mess, you know, Mm. if it wasn't for that. And I was trying to figure out like, how to cook dinner or something, right? Mm-hmm. But Yay for meal so, trains, those are yeah, so that's wonderful. exactly what. Yep, yeah, yeah. So me being nervous, and then just people stopping by to say hey and to just like talk to people, mm-hmm. right? I was in my room, either sleeping or nursing, for the first like six weeks. 
<laughs> just because I was so exhausted. Mm-hmm. But when it came to his tongue tie, for my knowledge then, it was like, oh, I don't see anything, right? So there is nothing there. And from colleagues, it was like, something's going on. We don't see a tie, but sometimes there is a tie that is, you know, something considered a posterior tie, which is more underneath. It may not be felt, but it definitely manifests with issues with supply and weight gain. I did get one session of cranial sacral therapy done with Malachi beforehand. The way that it was described to me and now the way I even describe the clients is like, especially with the fast stores, everything is kind of just condensed and tight, mm-hmm, right? So mm-hmm. there's tension in the body. It needs to be loosened up. So we did that. And then we went to Scott Siegel mm-hmm. for a tongue tie release, which it's interesting because I was so desperate. We actually went to the Long Island office because he didn't have any appointments in his Manhattan office. And I was like, we need to get this done like right now. I'm just tired of waiting. And it was a posterior tie. He has a lip tie, which we didn't do anything about. And immediately like the pain went away. Right. I remember that first, we took the Long Island Railroad with a two-week-old baby. And I packed the bottle because he wouldn't latch on the train. And we still happened to have a fire on the track and get caught out in the middle of Suffolk County what? on the way back home with a two-week newborn crying who just had a tongue tied. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but immediately that week, I remember going to a, a support group on the Sunday and a support group the following Sunday. He gained like a pound in a week. So oh obviously it's like, oh, yeah, okay, now he's gaining weight. Huge difference. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> So, yeah, so it was interesting to see that difference from the tongue tie release. We also did like a few sessions at Flower of Life and Park Slope after. Yeah. Yep. And so I'm, I vouch for body work all around for pregnant people, postpartum people, new babies. I think it's also a nice approach if you don't want to rush to a tongue tie release to see what it can do. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, like things weren't 100 percent until about six to eight weeks. Like he was gaining well, but my nipples still look smushed and weird. And he was cluster feeding a lot. I used to joke like five o'clock, I need to be on my couch ready to feed until about nine. And that was just the way my first like month and a half went (laughs) as he like figured it out. And now at two and a half, you know, you would never think that there was nursing issues. That's amazing. For people who have not heard of tongue tie or lip tie, can you explain a little bit about that as well as what uh, a phrenectomy is like? Yes, for sure. So you know, we all have a frenulum underneath our tongue, that tissue that we see when we lift our tongue. It's not a matter of if we see it or not. It is not a matter of how short it looks or how stretchy it looks. It's really a matter of how it functions. So many times I see babies who are not efficient feeders or they, they can't latch. They're slipping off the breast constantly. And unfortunately, they've heard, oh, it's a mild tie. It doesn't look like a tie. But it really is a matter of that frenulum and how much tension is there? How much can you really move the tongue? How efficient is it in removing milk from the breast? Because those first six weeks is what establishes your milk supply. So whether you're nursing on demand or pumping, you know, every two to three hours, that body getting the signal to remove milk and build that supply is going to happen in those first six weeks. So we want to make sure that baby's draining really well back to birthday in two weeks and that supply is good for however long you decide to um, provide your milk for your baby for. I think the the issue is 
they say that it's overdiagnosed now, but I think we're just in a very pro breastfeeding community now, and we're catching right. it more and more. You know, the education is there, the resources are there. I think many of us have it, have it, mm-hmm. still have it, work through it, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's so many things down the line that, whether with solids or speech or orthodontal work that comes up. Yeah. And so and- I also. Yeah, I was just going to say, I learned even it can affect your sleep. And it has so many ramifications in yeah. our long term health and life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when I educate parents, of course, I look at the immediate nursing situation is baby gaining well, how much is baby transferring per feed, ideally how mom supply, I look at goals around feeding, does a parent want to exclusively nurse, can they do bottles for two weeks to see if this improves, and then we reassess, right? I rule out any medical concerns with the nursing parent that could kind of mess with um, hormones, which will then impact breastfeeding. So we could say, okay, it's not a a parent issue. It's a baby issue, right? And so how can we support you guys through that? As well as I never want to be in a rush to have an intervention done. So it's like do body work, do stuff exercises. There's many things we could try to do to improve things and at a later date reassess if needed. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And does Dr. Siegel, I actually just heard from his assistant the other day because I refer people to his practice. Is it a laser for the procedure? It is a laser. Mm-hmm. That's what I Siegel thought. Siegel is a laser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so in New York, I found a lot of pediatricians refer to ENTs. Mm-hmm. And ENTs are ears, nose, throat doctors, and they all do scissors. Mm-hmm. Siegel does laser and there's been you know debate about which is better and yeah. which one is more efficient and it's interesting too to like which doctor to go to what for and I have seen like depending on the tie so this be totally fine like what level of tie it is also I think the matter of the skill of the provider too mm-hmm. you know sure. also lasers out of pocket versus an ENT in insurance so I've had some people do an ENT initially to see if it's you know hit or miss and then if they need to they'll go to Siegel and he might correct a tie. But I do think a lot of people, they're not in a rush to do an intervention as well as when perhaps pediatricians or other specialists aren't identifying it. It's a debate mm-hmm. of like, is it something we should do? And I think it's something to note. Not all care providers are trained in lactation. Right. Not all, you yes. know, so there's not equal mm-hmm. education and lactation. So we can't necessarily think at, like one provider is an end all be all. Yeah, that's a great point. Excellent. Yeah, pediatricians and also postpartum nurses don't always have the level Mm -hmm. of lactation expertise that we would think that many of us would just go into it thinking that they have. That's just not a thorough part of their training. Yeah, in most cases, anyway. Yeah, so with seeing Dr. Siegel, then were you working with your IBCLC for aftercare for like some basic PT, some massage? What did that look like? I was actually going to the support group to make sure he was gaining while and doing the stretches. So there's a bunch of stretches you're supposed to do underneath the tongue and lifting the tongue for about two weeks after, mm-hmm. you know, and I will say I was fortunate where it did seem like Malachi's recovery was a little bit faster than what I've seen. You know, I've seen various levels of recovery. Some people I'm like, this might just be what you need and others, they might need the continuous body work or the continuous stuff training, you know? So it is something of patience where even though Malachi gained well immediately, I don't think his latch kind of perfected until maybe a month or so after the fact. Mm -hmm. 
And I'll be sure to put in the show notes, Flower of Life Chiropractic, they're wonderful. And then, uh, you know, these different professionals that you're mentioning that you worked with. And maybe after we finish this, I'll email you and ask you if you have cranial sacral recommendations. I have my own recommendations, oh, sure. but since yeah. this is your story, if you'd like to yeah. share yeah. any of those recommendations, <laughs> I'd be happy to list those as well in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Flower of Life is actually my go-to for a lot of resources because of Brooklyn and Park Slope where they are located. But if a person is more Queens, Long Island City, I'll refer to Earth Sky Healing. Yes, with- that's my yeah one of my top yeah. recommendations. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah, I'll be sure to list them. So let's see. So things improved. Things got better. With- things got better right away with weight gain. But like I said, the comfort wasn't a hundred percent right away. But that was just something that in my head, I was like, we're just going to have to work through it. It's improving, you know, progress Mm -hmm. is progress. I think what gets hard is when a parent believes or has heard like baby needs to be on a schedule or baby should be sleeping through the night at a certain time or or, or a certain amount of hours by a certain age. Because when you have a baby who's not efficient at the breast and you're supplementing with bottles, bottles will always mask weight concerns. And then if you have a baby sleeping through the night, that's how many hours without a feeding and is that nursing parent pumping, you usually see those issues re-arise after, you know, quote unquote sleep training. So in my head, I was just like, I just have to dedicate my evening to nursing more, offering him more feeds. And yeah, his weight was always fine after. And I think she just helped my supply and became more efficient over that next month. Did you want to talk at all about, you mentioned having some postpartum anxiety? Yeah. Do you want to touch yeah. on that? All breastfeeding related. I was, I was, had a feeling all. it was breastfeeding related, but I, I wasn't sure. I just wanted to check. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as a, a mom who exclusively breastfed her first, when I realized I had to do bottles, I'm like, I have to pump. What if he gets nipple confusion? What if he never gets back to the breast? I was like down my husband's throat. Don't tilt that bottle too high. You don't want that flow too fast. And, you know, so here I'm like trying to pump and get my milk and also micromanaging the bottles. And, you know, what if my supply goes down? Like thinking kind of the worst of what breastfeeding could become. Because you know too much? Of of course. Of course. (laughs) I was just like all the situations in my head like playing out. Mm And then it was like, and then it was interesting because the pediatricians are saying everything's okay. And then my intuition was like, no, it's not. So that was a little bit of anxiety too. And then also I knew I didn't want to pump long term. So the goal was always to like do bottles to get his weight good and then take away bottles and pumping so I could nurse exclusively. Then I'm thinking about, oh my gosh, what if I have to carry a bottle everywhere I go? What if I, you know, like I can never nurse in public and it's so much easier to just have a baby in a carrier and just pop them on and And so it's just really like this rumination about like the worst case scenarios to happen around breastfeeding, Mm. really overwhelmed, so really Mm -hmm. exhausted and really overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And what about now that you have two little ones, a newborn and a five-year-old, I think you said? Yes. Yes. Was that playing into the anxiety at all? It was like more like, I was just so exhausted. I literally was in bed like 90%. And that wasn't my vision. Anyone who knows me, I'm like out and about. 
Like, I remember with Kenzie just putting her in the carrier and just walking outside. One, he was a smaller baby. And because he lost weight, he got even smaller. Mm. And so I remember the first time we took Mackenzie to the park, he had to be like maybe three or four weeks. And I had him in like a carrier in my coat. And it was just like 15 minutes outside. And I felt so accomplished to like even <laughs> be able to venture out and do 15 minutes. Because it felt like all I was doing was like trying to catch up on sleep and nurse the baby. Mm-hmm. Just to try to help things improve. Yeah. Yeah. Concerted yeah. effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then with Kenzie, she would just like come into the room and just so every any interaction with her was just like me from the bed, which was also weird. So then did that anxiety just eventually work itself out? Or as you introduce solids down the road, was there still some anxiety there? I'm asking this because I had an interview recently with someone who really had a lot of anxiety surrounding every aspect of feeding going into mm. solids. So I'm just curious if it the anxiety worked out on its own. Like I joke and say I didn't need a therapist to tell me I had some level of like PPD, right? Like an anxiety is on the spectrum of PMAT. Mm-hmm. I personally started taking CBD for my anxiety, which is like, you know, no THC. That worked wonders for me. It really, I noticed an immediate difference. And just talking things through. And like the interesting thing about my anxiety, and I'm not sure if it's the same with others, I could tell like my my thoughts were so illogical. Like it didn't make sense, right? But they're still there and you're still concerned about them. And over time, I just felt like the clouds over my head just kept floating farther and farther away until it was just like, oh, we're good. Mm. And then at six months, we introduced solids. He wasn't really ready at six months. Like, He wasn't like eating and many babies aren't, right? So I think for me, already being a mom, I wasn't like stressing solids and being like he had to eat. So I was just really following his cues, gave him some avocado, but I would say he didn't really eat solids until probably eight or nine months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, in terms of choosing your pediatrician, did you just stick with whoever you went with with your first or not? I'm seeing you shake your head. No, I changed pediatricians and after feeling unheard I changed again mm-hmm. <laughs> you Good know for so you asked, yeah so that was like you know and we actually have a pediatrician now Dr. Brioche which I joke she's every black Brooklyn family pediatrician basically oh, yeah. but she yeah like she's really she just listens and she honors mm. your decision in parenting and really just gives all the choices which I really really love so yeah so we go to her now and she is she's awesome and is she a black pediatrician or not? She is a black. She's she a Haitian American pediatrician. Haitian American. Nice. Yeah. I'll have to get her name so I can include yeah. that in the show notes. <laughs> so she's actually with Tribeca Pediatrics, uh-huh. which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I tell parents all the time, like, you find what resonates with you. Just because a practice is presenting X, Y, and Z, every doctor kind of works differently, has a different approach, and you have to find which feels good to you. So I personally, when I book for her, I'm only booking her because I know I want to see only Yes. <laughs> yes. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, great. Well, I'm glad I asked that question because it, it just, again, it goes back to finding the right care provider for you in every aspect of your health care, not mm-hmm. just giving yep. birth, but like for your little ones, you want to find yeah. a good fit. And normally... Yeah. 
Uh, I don't know what it was like for you. Feel free to share on this. But I recommend that people for the first year of a baby's life, just choose mostly by proximity, just because you're exhausted, you're having to go all the time, you don't want to have to travel. It's easy to switch later on to your more like ideal pediatrician, you know, that might be worth the trek later when you have the energy and you're not having to go as frequently. Right. But did you choose initially somebody really close or? or Yes, I think I don't even know. Now that I, I think about it, I don't even remember how I made the first two decisions I did. Because Mally was a home birth, we had to then go in for him to get checked Sooner. and all of this mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. But I just went to Methodist at the time. And then, like I said, after just feeling unheard, I just decided to not continue there. And then I don't even remember. And I, you know what? Takia, I think, told me about Dr. Brioche because she had had previous clients who went to her and loved her. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I think Dr. Brioche has done like a podcast with her already with Takia. So yeah, just once again, going back to that village and that community. That's great. Uh, Yay for finding wonderful care providers. (laughs) As you were talking about getting body work, if there's a suspected tongue tie or lip tie, or even if there's not the recommendation of body work, it just occurred to me, I wondered if you had any thoughts for if someone is like, they just don't have the financial resources oh, yes, for that kind yes. of thing? Because most of that stuff is not covered by most people's insurance. It is not. What would you say to someone who has that argument, but still really would love to do those things? Are there any mm-hmm. resources here in New York for different kinds of body work on a you know lower cost or sliding scale basis? Yeah. So I will say the two places that I knew pre-COVID no longer exist. And I think that's because of COVID, right? Ah, dang it. (laughs) Which is horrible. I personally am the type of provider that I will personally email for other providers. Like, hey, I have a client I would love to refer to you, but this is their situation, Mm -hmm. you know? And aside from body work, I talk about tummy time a lot. I educate on tummy time a lot because that's his own body work in an interesting way, right? Yes, yeah. So I educate on that. And I mean, body work isn't like a must, but it definitely is beneficial. So it's also one of those things that is it something we do body work or should they go to a skilled provider and do the tongue tie release also? Mm -hmm. And I've heard that I've definitely heard parents kind of be like, it's just adding up, you know, that's definitely a concern for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thanks for speaking to that. So you mentioned the struggles you had with, I think before we started recording, you mentioned that this breastfeeding journey and some of the struggles that you experienced really informed the work that you do with nursing support groups. Do you want to speak at all to that? Yeah, for sure. So even though I was already a mom and a La Leche League leader and all these different hats in the birth community, like I had said, my knowledge of like tongue ties and different issues that come up with breastfeeding didn't really like my own personal journey kind of catapulted me into researching and really understanding how tongue ties, lip ties, supply, all of that can unfold. So I will say uh, like 85% of the babies I see postpartum, there's a level of a tie there and baby may not be transferring well and mom's supply might be questionable. But I think it's beautiful to see like Let's do body work. Let's do um, some suck training. See if baby can get stronger. You're pumping to help, you know, your supply be maintained. And let's ensure hopefully that the supply continues to stay up. I tell parents all the red flags to look out for for long term, especially if things are on track. 
But sometimes, unfortunately, tongue ties, like let's say mom has an oversupply in the beginning, that can mask a tongue tie. Or I've seen parents where baby was gaining well initially because mom is nursing on demand, but they sleep train and now they're sleeping 12 hours at night and now supply and waking is not good, right? So I talk mm-hmm. to them about all these realistic different approaches to sleep and life and feeding around the tongue tie and anything else from like, you know, if your thyroid is messed up, that could impact supply. Anything with hormones can impact supply. So it's so interesting all I've learned over the years from like your cycle being irregular, right? And mm-hmm. estrogen levels and all of that. So it's more than just let's get a perfect lack. Let's just change that position, right? And really allowing you to dig in deep and really look at the big picture. I feel like in my head, I always felt like, okay, I want to become an IBCLC. And I was definitely working on it already when I had Malachi, but it just kind of pushed me even more to be like, okay, I got to do this. Great. So is there anything else you wanted to share before you share a little bit more about the work you do, just in case anyone didn't hear your first story or see our IGTV chat? I'd love for you to talk about that again, but any other insights you wanted to share? I think I kind of said it on the first one, like just the idea of like, you can hire and fire any of your providers, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't like someone, if you don't feel heard by someone, if you don't feel respected, honored, and listened to, you can go to someone else, right? There are you don't options. Have to tolerate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are always other options. You don't have to tolerate something because they're your aunt, so your best friend's provider, or everyone in your family births at this hospital, or like just common things you kind of hear in the community about why someone sticks with someone, even though they're also saying, I didn't like this when this happened or, you know, I don't like this hospital. And it's just like really be an active participant in your birthing journey. Mm. Well, as we wrap things up, could you please just tell us one more time about the nursing support work that you're doing and any other work that I would love to just uh, amplify? Yes. So I am currently leading um, chocolate milk cafe meetings. We have a handful of other lactation specialists for the Brooklyn location. This is a breastfeeding support group specific for those who identify as Black. And we've been active for two years now. There's a Harlem location. There's a Newark location. We are expanding. We've just become national in the last couple of months. And I also do La Leche League. They're both once a month meetings, depending on the location. But because there's so many locations, you could usually find something at some point. And then... I'm doing in-home visits when absolutely needed because of COVID. It's just unfortunate virtual doesn't give you all you can do depending on the situation. And in the new year, I just plan to put up my new schedule for everything once I know what's going on. Sure. And right now, I assume your nursing support groups are virtual? They are virtual, yeah. Mm -hmm. So on the websites are the links. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. So anybody anywhere potentially could join, but ideally find yes. your local, you know, chapter yes. so that you're developing those relationships so that eventually we'll be able to be in person again and really have that yeah, face-to-face sure. support and connections. Yeah. I'm really excited about the work that you're doing and that Chocolate Milk Cafe is doing. And I, again, I'll be sure to link all of that stuff in the show notes. Great. Well, anything else? That is all. I was working at Methodist here and I'm actually uh, starting again in, in January. So that's why I have to like rethink the schedule, mm-hmm. you know, but on average, the chocolate milk is the first Friday of every month, 530 to 7 in Malachi, like the first Tuesday of every month. 
first Tuesday of every month. Great. Well, thank you so much, Simone. It's been wonderful to hear this beautiful second birth story. Thank you for allowing me to share. Wasn't that a great story? I loved our time together, and I was so grateful that Simone was willing to come back on and share her second story. Today, I'm going to briefly talk about a few things that Simone touched on. Optimal fetal positioning, tongue tie and lip tie, PPD and PMADs, and weighted feeds. Simone mentioned spinning babies. This is one of my absolute favorite resources for birth, and I've linked to it in this episode's show notes, episode 63, over at birthmattersshow.com. The position of your baby plays a major role in the length of your labor, how efficiently things progress, and how arduous versus less arduous things might feel for the birthing person. Simone and I discussed belly mapping, so that's one area of the website I recommend looking at, but I also highly recommend looking up the daily and weekly activities. They're awesome for not only helping baby settle into a great position, but also balancing your body, which will reduce or possibly eliminate the common aches and pains that many have, particularly in the last few weeks of pregnancy. Those moves can also help labor progress more readily. Then also, if you determine that your baby is in a position that's less than optimal, spinningbabies.com has a page for each position with a ton of tips and tricks to encourage baby to shift into a better position for birth. What is an optimal position? We're hoping that by around 36 weeks, baby will be head down or vertex, and most babies do this. For birth, the hope is that baby will not only be vertex, but will also be in what's called LOA, or left occiput anterior position. Left refers to mom's left hip, occiput is the back of the baby's head, anterior means back of baby's head is facing the left hip. A few examples of non-optimal variations are breech, which is heads up, transverse, or sideways, or posterior, which is head down or vertex, but with the baby's back to pregnant parents' back instead of the back-facing mom's belly. You can find info on these things and more over at spinningbabies.com under the pregnancy and birth category. You can hear more details on tongue tie and lip tie in the educational endnotes of episode four. Simone mentioned PPD and PMADs, and I just want to clarify for anyone who's not familiar with these terms that PPD stands for postpartum depression and PMADs stand for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. You can hear more details on the definitions of these as well as risk factors for them at the end of episode 50. Simone mentioned a weighted feed. Lactation consultants have a portable scale that's much more meticulous than regular scales so that they can weigh the baby before a feed and then again after a feed to quantify how many ounces of milk a baby is taking in. This is one tool that can be very useful for anyone having challenges getting breastfeeding, also known as body feeding, off to a good start. Okay, here's a sneak peek of what's up next week. We never planned to have an only. We thought we'd have at least two, but it's so funny that that morning I was like, I am not doing that again. And then I ended up not doing that again. It took a couple of years to make that decision to not do that again, but I actually did choose not to do that again. And (laughs) it was overwhelming. I think because my mom had died before that, 
it triggered an upsurge of grief for me again. I had lived seven years without her and grief is not linear. It's kind of up and down and sometimes it's very unpredictable of when it's going to be down. And I was pretty overwhelmed with grief when Molly was born, just missing my mom so much. It's the reality that there's other women who don't have moms around when they become moms. I struggled. I don't know if I had postpartum depression, like, but I definitely had a strong upsurge of grief for a long time. Here's the thought I'll leave you with to ponder today. Remember that your intuition is there for a reason. Trust it. Thanks so much for listening to the Birth Matters Podcast. I hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time.